Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on governing during pandemic. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations are responding and adapting to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. One of the things we've been thinking about a lot is the hotspots of COVID-19 and where we're seeing increases or high density of individuals that um, have tested positive for COVID-19. Right. So the distribution of positive cases is definitely not uniform across Ohio, and and neither are the mortality rates. Two of the, I think, most important hotspots to talk about um, are, one was pretty obvious, I think, to most people, uh, and and perhaps more sympathetic to think of. And the second is less obvious and and perhaps less sympathetic for folks to think of. So the first is long-term care facilities, where we have a grouping of a high-risk population, right? So you have elderly folks that have multiple conditions. It's not really much of a surprise that these individuals are at high risk. One, if they if they catch uh, coronavirus, that they will, in fact, develop COVID-19 and have more negative outcomes, more likely to have negative outcomes from um, com- from contracting COVID-19. Right. And we're seeing it in the news, right? So we're, we see kind of, kind of these sympathetic, sympathetic images of people um, next to windows talking to, to their loved ones in long-term care facilities. But there's other places where this is happening that we're not, that we're, we're talking about, but it doesn't quite capture that same kind of sentiment. Right. So the the second place is uh, folks that are incarcerated, either in prisons or in jails. And in these spaces, I I think we think of them uh, less often. And when we do think of them, there's not as much um, uh, inclination for for sympathy and understanding uh, or, or even perhaps... Um, understanding of why these would be a hot spot. So these are densely populated areas. Folks don't have a lot of control, right, over their own ability to make decisions about social distancing or the use of PPE. And so um, these are places where folks are, you know, in a way, marginalized from making their own decisions about their own health. And so because of that, it's important that we talk to some folks that know, well, frankly, more than we do about it so that they can help us understand why incarcerated individuals are a much higher risk of um, contracting coronavirus and why the spread there is so rapidly uh, more than it is in the general population. Yeah, and what what they're doing to, to challenge the state's response. Joining us today is Megan Navisky and Joe Mead. Um, Megan Navisky is an assistant professor in the Criminology, Anthropology, and Sociology Department at Cleveland State University. Her research investigates the consequences of carceral contact on health, factors related to the conditions of confinement, and the collateral consequences of criminal justice policy. In addition to her research experience, Dr. Navisky has an extensive background in applied criminal justice. She has worked with the University of Cincinnati's Corrections Institute since 2009 as an evidence-based programming consultant and trainer, and she managed a rape crisis center for several years prior to joining 
UCCI. And also with us today is Joe Mead. Uh, Joe is a faculty member at Cleveland State University. He's a contributing editor on the Nonprofit Law Professor blog and teaches courses on nonprofit management, public administration, and law. He serves as an associate general counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union of Ohio and on the board of directors for the Center for Community Solutions. In 2017, he was named Advocate of the Year by Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. All right, so we're going to get started. I'm actually going to start um, my questions uh, for Megan. Um, Megan, can you tell us a little bit about your work and how you came to study the health consequences of incarceration? Sure. So my research focuses a lot on what are some of the health consequences tied to incarceration, which is important because of the very high rates of incarceration we have in the United States. So compared to a lot of other countries, our incarceration rates are not only really high, but our incarceration lengths are quite long. There's pretty drastic impacts on individuals who become exposed to incarceration, uh, especially as, as it relates to health. I've been in and out of many correctional institutions, both jails and prisons throughout the United States in the course of my research. And what I have found overwhelmingly is that, first of all, people are often exposed to violence while they're incarcerated, which has a lot of mental health consequences because people experience you know, traumatic reactions to witnessing violence, becoming victimized themselves and things like that. But also that people have a lack of access to medical services and adequate health care while they're incarcerated. And so they lack access to the kinds of things they need to uh, maintain healthy lives. So related to the current pandemic, this all kind of comes together in a perfect storm and unfortunately is shining a light on some of the, the lack of access people have to medical services. Yeah, to that point, um, the coronavirus has made your work even more urgent. Can you talk us through what's happening in Ohio and throughout the country in terms of people experiencing incarceration and exposure to coronavirus? So there's a couple prisons that the infection rates were in excess of 75%. So you had more than 75% of the prisoner population infected with COVID-19. And then also a substantial portion of the staff. So I know at Marion Correctional, for example, there was a point that at least 30% of their, their staff were also infected with COVID-19. So we made international, not only national, but international news for that. And right now in Ohio, we have just over 4,500 positive cases of incarcerated people infected, which I'll, I'll note is about 10% of our prison population. So we've got about 49,000 prisoners in our state. And so about 10% of them are currently infected. If you look at our federal prison, Elkton, we have another 131 positive cases. And if you look across the entire state, so looking at our state prisons and our federal, we've had 73 deaths because of COVID-19. Then the overwhelming number of those were uh, prisoners, not staff. So we had two staff members die because of COVID. The remaining were prisoners. Um, so that's kind of what's going on in Ohio. And we, there's been pushes to try to decarcerate and let as many people out as possible to free up space in our state to try to help minimize um, the spread and also minimize risks for mortality, which is the biggest concern here. Nationally, we're getting close to 30,000 confirmed cases among 
incarcerated people. And we've got almost 400 deaths across the U.S. because of COVID-19. So uh, this is impacting people uh, at not only our state, but also at a national level. And the biggest issue is that our prisons are becoming, well, they actually are now uh, hotspots for the virus. And so once um, people start getting infected inside these institutions, it's very hard to uh, address it because it spreads like wildfire, essentially. It's hard for me to comprehend the numbers, right? So I'm, 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 I'm still struggling with trying to make sense of it and how every time I'm reading something, it's continuing to go up. What are some of the conditions that make incarcerated individuals so vulnerable to this, this spread of COVID-19? That's a really good question. So there's several things that kind of come together to to make prisons and jails basically uh, high risk sites for not only COVID-19, but infectious disease in general. So this goes beyond kind of the current pandemic. But if you think about other infectious diseases, uh, it's relevant too. Uh, so one of the factors is overcrowding. So I mentioned earlier that we have extremely high rates of incarceration in our country. Um, and our incarceration lengths are really long. So what has happened over the last several decades is we've produced an overcrowding problem where we have way too many people crammed in our prisons and our jails. We're lacking space to house these individuals. So we're moving more away from like single cell housing arrangements where people each have their own cells to cramming multiple people together and having shared dormitory areas to converting spaces that weren't traditionally housing areas to, you know, where you're putting together a lot of bunk beds and people are living in these congregate settings. So that's part of the problem is you just have way too many people crammed together in small spaces. Think about what, what the recommendations are from the CDC in the community is to spread people out. So if you're in a prison and you've got a bunch of people crammed together and you can't create the six foot uh, you know, minimum distance, you've already got a problem from the offset. The other problem is they have lack, lack of access to PPE equipment, to uh, soaps and sanitizers. So something that people might not be aware of is that something as simple as hand sanitizer in a jail in a prison is considered contraband because of the high alcohol content. So typically, that is an item that is off limits to incarcerated people. Uh, and there's been some uh, shifts to try to, you know, uh, make that more available and perhaps provide it to correctional officers who can allocate it out as necessary to incarcerated people and things like that. So just something so simple as hand sanitizer, which we're struggling in the community to be able to buy enough on Amazon, right? But people in prisons are having a hard time just having access to, to it, period. So that's another factor. A couple other things is imagine what it's like in a, to live in a jail or a prison. It's an extremely high stress environment. I, I alluded earlier to the high rates of violence that occur in, in prisons in particular. And so you have violence exposure going on. You have lack of access to social support like your family and friends. You have reduced choices. It's very dehumanizing. All of these things kind of come together and it's a high stress environment. And the relevance of stress is that exposure to stress can weaken the immune system. So when people are exposed to stress, especially chronically and over time, the immune system can become weakened and um, can basically put your body in uh, a state of fight or flight constantly and your body becomes overreactive to, to stressful circumstances. 
so that's an issue. And then the other two things I'll throw out is that the incarcerated population has a growing number of older adults. So people who are 50 years of age and up. And also incarcerated people tend to have disproportionate chronic health problems. So they're already entering the prison environment with higher than average rates of chronic and infectious diseases. And you have also the aging prisoner population, which as we know from the CDC, people are at high risk, especially if they are older in age and if they have certain chronic health conditions. So all of these things are coming together and making the environment really high risk. And I guess one more thing I'll add is it's not a environment that is stable because you have staff members coming in and out all the time. So people tend to think of prisons as stable environments that are closed off to the community. But across the United States, we have over 400,000 correctional officers working in these institutions and they're coming in and out of the facilities every single day. So whatever they're exposed to in the community, they're bringing into the institution. Whatever they're exposed to in the institution, they're bringing back to the community. So it's a very fluid environment where people are fluctuating in and out. Now, Joe, you've been deeply involved in this work as well. Can you talk to us a bit about your current work with the ACLU of Ohio? Sure. So uh, the way that I think about things is, you know, we have constitutional rights that apply to everybody. And and a lot of our work with the ACLU of Ohio is to make sure that everybody is in fact given those rights, even people who are uh, disadvantaged or marginalized by the political bodies. Um, when it comes to prisons, people who are incarcerated have a constitutional right to be free from cruel and, and unusual punishment. And what that means as the way the courts have described it is that Prisons have to protect them from an undue risk of infection, uh, uh, unnecessary exposure to either pain, suffering, medical conditions, or an, an infection that would cause any of those. So what we've been doing is, is litigating to seek release or better conditions for people who are in, detained um, because they're being exposed to, as Dr. Novisky said, this high risk of infection um, and, and the, the suffering that comes with it. So can you walk our listeners a bit through this process, right? So what does the process of legal advocacy look like? Specifically, how are you alerted to cases where legal advocacy is needed? And then in turn, how is that then provided to those that need it? Sure. So the ACLU of Ohio is doing kind of a two-part strategy. The first part is just policy advocacy. So learning what's out there. Uh, lobbying the governor, lobbying officials to say, hey, don't forget about the people who are detained. The second part, though, is the number of uh, family members, people who are incarcerated, people who care about people who are incarcerated, are regularly reaching out to designated numbers that the ACLU has. Once we are... Once a lawyer decides to represent a client, then our goal is to get the best result that we can for them. Um, and so two uh, examples, one is the, a case that I'm personally involved with against the federal prison in Elkton. And so in that case, we're representing several individuals as well as other people who are in similar positions in a class action seeking uh, significant change in the population levels to prevent the further spread of the virus in, in that prison. Other examples, though, that I know Dr. Novisky has been involved in and the ACLU, other ACLU lawyers have been involved in, is representing individuals who are detained, not necessarily in criminal matters, but 
maybe pretrial detention or immigration detention, which is not a a, a criminal uh, act. It's a civil kind of de- form of detention. They've been working to release them from uh, incarceration given this virus. So the ACLU of Ohio and others are urging the governor to release incarcerated people, right, given the context of the high infection uh, spread within prisons across the state. And, and it sounds like from what Dr. Nowitzki says, really across the nation. Um, I know that you've been involved in legal cases, but what are some other strategies that organizations are using to advocate for change? So you talked a bit about a policy advocacy. Is that just one other strategy or are there multiples? Sure. I mean, there's a lot going on here. One is education, and Dr. Novisky and her work is certainly critical in that. Making sure that people realize that uh, it's not the same danger. You can't just say, oh, well, people are getting sick on the outside as well, so therefore we shouldn't care. It's a uniquely dangerous situation when you're incarcerated. People need to realize that. Um, this there are other avenues that are being approached. One is to understand the the scope of the problem. So better reporting on the number of people who are dying or being infected within places of detention helps raise public awareness and helps us craft a better solution. The other thing that people are are pursuing are sort of executive acts that provide a, a measure of clemency or commutation or some relief to people who are detained. And so, you know, even if it's not a policy change, it, it sort of acts as a benefit, as, as a, a something of a, a band-aid, if you will, for people to get them out of places of incarceration. Now, a lot of advocacy measures often take place right at the at the state capitol or in places that are public, right, where a lot of us get together and we're protesting something. That's really not feasible right now because of, you know, shelter in place requirements or, or social distancing measures. So are there other ways that we can adapt typical strategies to try to make our voices heard about these things that we feel are injustices? I think a lot of uh, the organizing right now is online, through online forums, through uh, there have been a number of community networks that have formed. uh, And I mean community, not just in a geographical sense, but in a policy issue sense, right? Like, so there are these, these groups that are committed to trying to release people uh, from incarceration or at least bring attention to it from uh, bring the public's attention to it. And uh, I've been pleasantly surprised by how many people, I mean, we have hundreds of lawyers who have offered to volunteer to help us with this work. And I, and this is just one tiny fragment, sliver of the effort that's being done out there. So that's been one encouraging thing. So the the ACLU of Ohio recently submitted an ODRC, a public records request. What are public records uh, and why are these public records important for us to have access to, especially in the case of trying to mitigate the spread of infectious disease within uh, the incarcerated population? So in, in a democracy, the records that the government holds are presumptively the people's records, right? They're not some separate entity's records. So we're presumptively entitled to them. And a number of state and federal laws create a right to access the information that the government produces when it's about the activities of government that matter. And uh, so one of those those records that exist are, is how prisons are responding to 
the crisis? You know, how how many people are being infected? What what's the treatment look like? How many people are dying or being hospitalized or in pain? And what are the measures that are being taken? And so finding out that information creates th- this avenue for both legal and policy advocates to fight to make things better. Now, I actually, we just saw that uh, ACLU of Ohio just tweeted out something about uh, your public records request now. So, so talk to me about um, what's the purpose of this public records request? Uh, and, and is part of it that not just that we want to see you know, data that rightfully belongs to the people, but is it another mechanism for educating folks about the real issues that are happening and have them be able to see the evidence themselves? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so when Dr. Novisky talks about the rate of infection and the number of people who are are dying, that's something that the government, if it if it wasn't forced to be transparent, it mu- we would never know the scope of the problem. But because the state and the, the federal government are providing that information as they are legally required to do, we now better understand the scope of the problem. We understand the limits of what's being done. We understand the urgency of doing more. And so, I mean, public records, it's not just a formal thing of like, uh, you know, bothering an agency to have to provide more more documents than they want to. It's a, it's a key part of making sure the, the constituents are informed so we can try to force them and push them to do better. Absolutely. This conversation is really interesting um, because it's enlightening to think about all the different strategies for educating the public, but also holding government accountable for people who uh, that are disadvantaged in in particular ways. Uh, Dr. Novisky, I know that you've also been working with the ACLU of Ohio. What does that work look like? And how does your academic research help inform decision-making processes, whether through the ACLU um, of Ohio or, um, you know, government entities more broadly? So the work I've been doing with the ACLU is uh, a very small component, but I help essentially come in as uh, these very brilliant attorneys, including uh, Professor Mead, put together uh, an argument to help people make sure that their constitutional rights are not being violated, essentially. And I come in and I provide a document that supports some of their rationale and outlines some of the risks that are being imposed on people based on the current correctional environment and COVID-19 specifically. So I've written a couple um, content expert declarations explaining that if people are not released, And if extra precautions are not taken, that we're going to expect the infection rates to go up, that we're going to have more deaths, and that public public health in general is going to be compromised. So I've just kind of supported with those documents and citing research and studies and data to help support some of the rationale they're making with their arguments. And uh, as far as how my research informs policy, uh, I typically start a research project because I I hope to impact policy. So that's kind of something that I think makes me a little bit unique as an academic is I see the connection to policy right up front. And I think it's very important that our research helps inform decision making because without, without data and research to back up decisions, we're kind of just flying blind. And so I really try to be an advocate that when we're making decisions and when government officials are making decisions, that there should be some research uh, and 
you know, rationale behind that that supports it. And that's some of the work I do with University of Cincinnati's Corrections Institute. So I go and I train correctional staff throughout the country on the types of rehabilitation programs that they are implementing. And so we help them identify what types of programs are based in evidence. So what types of programs have been studied in the research and have been shown to reduce recidivism risks. And so that's been a big change that's happened across the country and in the state of Ohio over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years is getting correctional facilities to shift away towards implementing programs that don't really have much research behind them to using programs that have research behind them. From your perspective, what would a system look like that prioritizes the health and well-being of people who are incarcerated? First, I think it would recognize that these are people just like you and me. Uh, There's research demonstrating that in the United States, one in two U.S. adults has had or will have a family member incarcerated at one point, an immediate family member. So this is something that impacts a lot of us. So that's the first thing is recognizing these are human beings and these are people with constitutional rights just because they're incarcerated. They still need to be treated like human beings. Uh, As far as some policies, I think if we want to make sure that um, health is being prioritized, people need to have access to medical services. And especially during a pandemic, this would include things like access to testing. Uh, Some prisons, I mean, if you look across, you know, even the state of Ohio um, and also across the country, there's some prisons where everybody is being tested and there's others where nobody's being tested. And so, you know, making sure that so we don't even we can't even really document fully the scope of the problem unless you're looking at the institutions that are doing wide testing. So the numbers that we have, I will say, like looking at the national numbers is vastly underestimating the the true infection rates because so many people or so many institutions, I'll say, are not testing. Uh, Look at the institution at Elkton, the federal institution we talked about. Uh, they they were not doing hardly any testing up front, and they're now doing more, but they still, um, you know, aren't testing their entire population. They're getting, you know, some tests here and there uh, each week. But we need to have access to testing so we can know what we're dealing with. That's the first thing. Um, we need to have reductions in our population size. This goes beyond the pandemic. It's heightened now because of the pandemic because we can't separate people physically. But even when we move beyond COVID-19, We need to have reductions in our prison population so that our medical providers in the institutions aren't overburdened so that uh, they can provide necessary services so that people have access to rehabilitation programs. So I know some of the work that I've done, what I have seen is that prisons are so overcrowded that oftentimes they're being placed in rehabilitation programs as they're nearing the end of their sentences as opposed to upfront, because there's wait lists for people to get into programming. Um, That's another overcrowding issue. And some of those programs I'll add are substance abuse programs. That's another public health issue. I think also what we need to do is increase access to medical supplies. So making sure that people have access to things like soaps and hand sanitizer and the kinds of things that help protect them. And just a general recognition that much of what drives incarceration is is poverty and racism. So, you know, when people become incarcerated, a lot of it is is due to circumstances beyond their control. They're disproportionately impacted 
And so when they come to um, an, uh, an institution, a prison or a jail, I think a shift in recognizing why they're there and, and making it an environment where resources are available as opposed to depriving them even further of things that are going to perpetuate the cycle of incarceration is really important. So this uh, last question is for really both of you. And this goes, I think, for things that our listeners are going to be asking. And that is, what is it that you want the public to know? And if appropriate, how is it that they can get involved if this is an issue that is concerning to them? Um, Dr. Nabisky, if you could start, that would be fabulous. Sure. I think the main thing I would like listeners to know is that prison health is public health. So what's going on in prisons and the health of Incarcerated people impacts all of us. And when incarcerated people are healthier, so are we. We are better as a society and we are healthier if, if people who are in prison are healthier. And additionally, beyond, beyond that, we limit our credibility as a criminal justice system when people are treated inhumanely. When people are treated inhumanely, we are less likely to be able to rehabilitate them and that also means that our crime rates are likely to go up. So, I mean, there's, there's criminological theories you could cite here, but basically when people are, are not treated like human beings, they're more likely to act out defiantly. They're more likely to feel the system is out to get them, and they're less likely to overcome the problems that they have. And so we're essentially just making the, the problem worse when we treat people like they're not human beings. So if we don't get a grip on, you know, addressing the public health issues here. We're not only going to be worse as a as an entire community or society, but we also interfere with our efforts to lower our crime rate. Right. And Professor Mead, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I totally agree with Dr. Novisky on this. Uh, so much of the rhetoric and the framing around prisoner health is that, you know, that they are subhuman. They're, they're not entitled to the same human rights that we all are, which of course is false. Um, it, you know, just... When, when you look at the sort of sentences, there was a, a woman who who died from COVID-19 um, after being sentenced for maybe a year because she uh, ran a drug house was essentially the charge. And she was pregnant uh, and she suffered greatly and then she died. And that's not the sort of society that we should tolerate. Um, and that's it's a really tragic event that could have been avoided. And so, you know, echoing everything that Dr. Novisky said, we need to make sure that we reframe the issue that, you know, people who are, are incarcerated still have the right to life and they have the right to, to avoid unnecessary suffering. So if you want to get involved, what I would suggest is uh, not just educate yourself and educate the people around you, but also there are plenty of opportunities. There are groups, advocacy groups, nonprofit groups that are are organizing around this issue. This has become more salient, I think, in recent months than it had been in recent years. And that's that means there's a good a good window here for us to take some some steps to uh, in, improve prisoner health. I would say voting too. So criminal justice reform has become at the you know center of some of these national debates. And so if you want to get involved, the biggest thing I think you can do is get out and vote. I mean, would you say that there's any positive aspect to this that we can take away? I mean, I know that sounds terrible because we're talking about people that are dying because they're, you know, forced into an unsafe condition. But are there positive aspects that we might be able to take away from this, such as that, hey, at least there's some attention that's being paid to this? Um, I Yeah, I think that we can look at the fact that attention has been drawn to the issue. So 
this is something that people weren't talking about as much a couple months ago. And, you know, now the conditions of incarceration are on not only our own local headlines, but national and international headlines. So I think it's increasing conversations. It's also forcing policymakers to think through what do we do at a time of a pandemic in an environment like a correctional facility and how do we get equipment there and things of that nature. And so, I mean, I think it is forcing us to have these conversations beyond just, you know, within academic worlds and channels. And if I could add to that, you know, there's been uh, it hasn't been nearly enough, but there has been a push by all levels of law enforcement, by the attorney general of the United States, by state officials to do something to realize the the scope of the problem. And that's basically a, a function of the fact that the public attention is being turned to it. I also would say I draw encouragement from the fact that there are so, so many people who are now working, volunteering their time, advocating. You know, I, I would estimate thousands of lawyers nationwide are taking on these pro bono cases. There are networks formed just to handle these sorts of cases. And that, to me, means we're, we're going in a good direction. Thank you both so much for joining us. Um, I know that I've personally learned a lot um, from just having this conversation um, and hope that our listeners have, have learned a lot as well. Um, so I want to, I just want to thank you again for taking the time um, to share your expertise and your wisdom and your knowledge with uh, all of us here in Northeast Ohio and hopefully beyond. Thank you so much for having me. Likewise. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we talk to Chanel Smith-Wiggum about the importance of green space and access to parks, especially during the pandemic.